Last week, chapter 3, we saw Ruth, under the direction of her mother-in-law, go to Boaz and propose marriage. Now, this was an audacious, it was bold, uh, it, was, it was a crazy decision on some parts on the part of Naomi and Ruth. Ruth was a penniless widow. She was a foreigner that Naomi had brought back with her from Moab. But that's not how, a, how Boaz saw her. Boaz, from the time he met her, I believe, was smitten with Ruth. So when she came to him at the threshing floor that night and proposed marriage, using that euphemism of spread your wings or spread your covering over me, he was ecstatic. He was thrilled at the opportunity of redeeming this beautiful young woman. It's likely that Boaz was an older widower. It's likely that he didn't have children. And it's very obvious that he would never have imagined that someone like Ruth would have looked to him to become her redeemer. So that night when she proposed at the threshing floor, uh, he was overjoyed. But there was a snag in this story. And we talked about it last week. The law said that the closest relative was responsible to redeem the widow and raise children for the deceased. And this, in this situation, there was a closer relative. Now, he's not named, but he figures very prominently in chapter 4 in the story. And so <clears throat> the tension is now beginning to really increase. If this was a soap opera, it would end with um, something like this. Will a closer relative redeem Naomi? Will true love prevail? Will Ruth and Boaz finally be married and live happily ever after? Well, tune in next week and you will find out what happens. And I, and I think that the way the author has written this, he's, he's intending to bring us to this cliffhanger, to this moment of suspense where you, where you want to read on now. Like you, you really want to sort of figure out how the story is going to end. Well, the, the tension's resolved, the story ends when the closest relative says that although he would like to redeem uh, Naomi and Ruth and, and receive the land, he, because of his own financial situation uh, and, and the inheritance that he is needing to pass on to his family, is unable to marry Ruth. And so he defers, and now Boaz is allowed to function as the kinsman redeemer, the family redeemer. And so Boaz has all the, the men of the city, the elders of the city come to the city gate and, and he says, like, you guys are witnesses of this. Now you're seeing what's going on. And they say, we are witnesses. So it was done in a very transparent, very open way. And so as a consequence of what transpires, uh, the people of the city bless the upcoming union between Ruth and Boaz. They bless them and say, May the Lord make you like uh, Leah and Rachel, the, the wives of Israel who bore the 12 sons of Israel. And they say, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and have renown in Bethlehem. And then they celebrate um, and, they, and they speak words of blessing into their lives. And so the story ends very, very happily. And there's a connection made very clearly between the end of Ruth and the beginning of 1 Samuel, which leads into the life and the rule of King David. 
Now, as I said last week in, in these actions, Boaz has demonstrated something about who he is. Chapter 2 introduces him as a worthy man, a man of valor, a man of character, a man of uh, impeccable integrity. And I said last week that he is uh, a type, he is an illustration, he is a picture that, that prefigures the final Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about that connection last week. Boaz, Boaz is, is a credible picture, a legitimate picture of the life, the ministry, and the character of Jesus. And so what I'd like to do in this message this morning is look at the connection between, again, between Boaz and Jesus, but look at the character of Boaz and how it is an example for us. Now, I don't know about you guys, I have never worn one of those little what would Jesus do bracelets. Because for me, it seems impossible. Like I look at my life and I know how messed up I am. Like I'm a sinner saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am fallen. I am flawed. I look at Jesus and he is the incarnate son of God. And I know exactly what Jesus would do. He wouldn't sin. He wouldn't mess up. He wouldn't think some of the thoughts that I think. He wouldn't have the reactions of some of the reactions that I have because he was the incarnate son of God. He never sinned. I know exactly what Jesus would do. So what I want to try to ask this morning is this. What did Boaz do? Now, I would wear that bracelet. bracelet. You know, WDBD. Well, what does that stand for? Well, what did Boaz do? Because I can relate to him in a way that I sometimes have a hard time with Jesus. Here we have a man of impeccable character. You know what? By God's grace, I can become a man of impeccable character. Here we have a man who did it right. By God's grace, all of us can do it right. Here we have a man who followed the teachings of the scripture. By God's grace, we can follow the teachings of the scripture. We can live lives of integrity. We can be known as worthy men and women. Not perfect, never perfect. Boaz wasn't perfect, but he was worthy. The scripture called, and in chapter four, that word comes up again. That, that word worthy comes up again. Related to his, his legacy. And so, here are five things that reflect the life, the character of Boaz. First is this. He prioritized principle over pleasure. Now we're going to hearken back a little bit to last week. But in last chapter 3, last week's story, Boaz's character really begins to shine through in this late night encounter with Ruth. Remember, she is desperate, she is needy, and she is going to Boaz to offer him the only thing that she has that is of any value at all, and that is her. She is going there and basically saying, you can have me. Now, remember in this story, the threat of sexual violence and sexual assault is not just hinted at, it is expressed openly, twice. In chapter 2, verse 9, Boaz has told his men, don't touch this woman. And then in chapter 2, verse 22, Naomi encourages Ruth not to go to another field because there is a possibility that if she is in another field, she may be assaulted. 
And so with that in the background, we're in a situation now where the story tells us that it is rife with sexual tension. She is going to this man to offer herself to him. He is a widower. He is lonely. He doesn't have a wife and probably hasn't had a wife for a while. And this has all of the makings of an immoral encounter. She has bathed. She has put on perfume. She has put on her loveliest outfit. And she goes and she says in the middle of the night, Euphemistically, she's going and saying, here I am, you can have me. And what does Boaz do? He has been drinking, celebrating the end of the harvest. His heart is merry with wine. And what does he do? He doesn't succumb to the temptation that he must have felt. He doesn't give in to the impulse to gratify himself. He doesn't take advantage of Ruth. He treats her with respect and with dignity. He resists his natural desires, his natural impulses, and acts on principle. Principle trumped pleasure. Now, we know this is true in the life of Jesus. John 6, 38. I have come down from heaven to do the will, not to do my own will, but do the will of him who sent me. We know that's exactly what, reflect, what we see reflected in the character of Jesus. He didn't come to do his will. He came to do the will of his father. Principle Trump pleasure. The principle of obedience. The principle of steadfastly following the will of his father trumped everything else. He put principle before pleasure. So in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, in the garden at the end of his ministry, the principle that governed his life was obedience to the father. Now we'll never be offered the kingdoms of this world if we bow down to Satan. But we will always face the temptation to put the principle of obedience above or behind pleasure. And real Christian character begins. What would Boaz do? What should we do? We must learn to come to that place in our journey as Christians where we regularly wrestle this issue to the ground. And pleasure must submit to the principle that we as Christians are to obey. That is the mandate that God has given to us. We must learn to force our passion for pleasure to bow at the foot of principle. The, problem, the challenge is, and what makes it more difficult, is that we live in a culture that teaches in so many ways that we should follow what is pleasurable, that it is noble and right and good to give expression to that which brings us pleasure. What feels good, according to our culture, should be the compass that guides our choices. That is clearly not what the Word of God teaches you. That's not what the Word of God teaches 
the people of God. So if you want to go over just as an example to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I want to read a couple of verses for you. And I want you to just listen to what this says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for your life and my life is for our sanctification, that we be people who would be set apart holy to the Lord, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. It is imperative that we know how to control ourselves so that principle submits, I'm sorry, that pleasure submits to principle. Each of us should know how to control our own body in holiness and in honor. Not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things as we told you before and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So here's the first point. We will never be men and women of integrity. Don't, don't wear the what would Boaz do bracelet unless we first wrestle this thing through. Are we always going to succeed? No, because the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh that sometimes, Paul says in Galatians, we can't do. We don't do what we want to do. But the trajectory of our lives, the trajectory of our hearts must be that pleasure submits to to the principle that I am a man or a woman who obeys God. We must learn to control our physical impulses. And I'm not just talking about our sexual impulses, although that's clearly the issue that's um, in, in the foreground here. We're also talking about the tongue Lying, boasting, the fist, whether it's we're pugnacious physically or whether we're pugnacious relationally, getting into conflicts, buying stuff, using that credit card when it's out of control. We don't have the ability to stop ourselves. We need to learn. You know, somebody said a long time ago that, you know, we we spend money that we don't have to buy things that we don't need to impress people who don't care. And I think a lot of us fall into that by, and it's almost like an instinctive thing. We can't control ourselves. We, we want it. We pull the credit card out. We're thinking, I shouldn't do it. I, so, I owe so much money already, but we get it. Because we don't, we've never come to that place. We've really wrestled with this issue, this issue and said, you know what? I must, I must allow the principle of obedience to trump my inclination to pleasure. Momentary pleasure. Food, other addictions, alcohol. Godly men, godly women are people who first and foremost control their physical appetites. But secondly, secondly, he submitted to the scriptures. He submitted to the scriptures. So as soon as as it was light, verse verse 1 of chapter 4, Boaz got up went to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said to him, turn aside, friend, sit down here. 
He turned around and sat down. What was Boaz doing? Boaz was doing exactly what the Bible had told him to do. We talked about this last week, so I won't belabor the point. Deuteronomy 25 and some other places in, in the Liverite law, you saw how this role of the kinsman redeemer was supposed to be lived out in Israel. Boaz was fully conversant with what the Bible taught. And because what the Bible taught was clear, he went and did what he did instantly. The next, as soon as it was light, as soon as the sun came up, as soon as Ruth had left him and he had given her that huge gift of food, he goes and does what the Bible tells him to do. Now, this is significant. I haven't mentioned this since the very first message in Ruth. But this happens in the time of the judges. And in the book of Judges, it says this twice. It says it in verse chapter 6, 17, 6 and 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the reality is that Boaz was living in a context in which it seems that everybody was doing their own thing regardless of what the express teaching of the word of God told them to do. Does that sound familiar? Everybody in Israel was doing what was right, what they felt was right, what they felt they wanted to do. And no one was paying attention to the laws that God had given to them because there was no king to enforce it. People were doing whatever they wanted to do, regardless of what the Bible taught. But Boaz wasn't. Boaz, again, is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boaz respected, Boaz honored, Boaz esteemed, and Boaz deferred to the word of God. Just like Jesus did. I was thinking about how to illustrate this this week, and I, and I thought of that conversation that Jesus had in John 10. And I don't want you to turn there, and we don't have time to talk about this. But in John 10, Jesus is having an argument with the Jews. And they're arguing back and forth, and Jesus is claiming to be the I Am. Jesus is claiming to be God incarnate. And they're getting all frustrated and upset with him. And so what Jesus does is he hangs the entirety of his argument about his nature, about his divinity, on the fact that in Psalm 82, the word Elohim there is plural and not singular. Think about that. The Son of God rests the argument, his argument, that he is divine on the fact that the Old Testament word Elohim is in the plural in Psalm 82, verse 2, I think, and not in the singular. Does that say something to you about Jesus' perception of the word of God? His high, high, high view of Scripture? Clearly it does. The most critical thing about the nature of Jesus, who he was, God incarnate, is resting upon, if it was in English, an S in one word. Jesus didn't have any question about, where's, was Adam and Eve real? Were they real people? Of course they were, in Jesus' mind. You see, his understanding of Scripture, what the Scriptures were, 
was no different than Boaz. It is the inspired, the inerrant, the unchanging, the perfect word of God. And so a man of integrity, understanding that, lives it. A woman of integrity, comprehending that reality that this is the word of God, obeys it. You see, we do, we're not called to subsume our pleasure under the, the umbrella of the principle of obedience in a vacuum. We do this because God has spoken unequivocally, absolutely. And he has given us a clear picture of his will, his intent for us, how he would have us live our lives, that we would know blessing. At the end of that little passage in John chapter 10, Jesus says this to, the, to sort of finish his argument. He says, and the scriptures cannot be broken. They cannot be broken. Sadly, in Christendom today, there's a, there's a lot of questions about the trustworthiness of the word of God. You want to know why mainline denominations are imploding? Why people are just, why they're empty? Because sometime 50, 100 years ago, they decided that it was okay to be skeptical about the word of God. To, to, to wonder, does it really mean what it says? Is it trustworthy? Can we believe it? They began to devalue and distrust the word of God. And sadly, I even hear now within so-called evangelical churches, people starting to talk about how the Bible is so out of step with culture. Wasn't it written in another time for another context? It doesn't really speak to my unique circumstance. We're much more advanced today. We know so much more than we did during the days when the Bible was written. Personally, it just doesn't make sense to me. I just don't feel that it's right what God's saying here. Or my professor told me that I can ignore that part because it doesn't apply. And it goes on and on and on ad nauseum, ad infinitum. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the worst sort of clever men are those who know better than the Bible. Boaz wasn't that kind of man. And a man or a woman of Integrity is a man or a woman who simply defers to the teaching of the word of God. And not only to the teaching, but to the hearing. Spurgeon also said this, to me the Bible is not God, but it is God's voice. And I do not hear it without awe. Now I want you to remember this, and because this is so important. Today, it's almost like people sit down with their Bible the way someone sits down to do an autopsy. They, they've got their scalpel and their tweezers and they're teasing it apart and they're looking and they're trying to sort of... When the Bible was, was originally written, whether it be Paul writing to the Laodiceans, do you know, how, you know how people received that? They were probably sitting in a very dark place because they didn't want the authorities to know. It's probably late at night or early in the morning. And they would just sit there and they would hear 
the word of God. In some senses, the most important thing that happened this morning is when Matt stood up here and read the living word of God to us. Because as Spurgeon said, when you hear the scriptures read, you hear the voice of God. It's so easy for us to sit down with a passage of scripture. For instance, it talks about how, how gender should work or how the home should work or how marriage relationships should work. It's so easy for us to sit down there and try to tease it apart and take the tweezers and exegetical tools to try to make it say what we don't like, it's, make it say the opposite of what we don't like in the scriptures. We'd be so better off, so better off, if we just sat there, closed our eyes, and listened to the voice of God in his word. And I think it's so critical to our integrity as men and women. Don't, don't parse the Bible into, what do we do? We just, we neuter it. We, we parse it so that, it, well, for me it says this, and for you it can say this, but it's still God's word. Christian integrity, real integrity, godliness, is rooted in the decision, the belief, the confidence that this is the inspired, inerrant word of God. And we stop distrusting, we stop questioning, we stop second-guessing and simply obey. How in the world did it get to be 10 o'clock? <laughs> I feel like I'm in a time warp up here. <laughs> okay. Very quickly, he chose camaraderie in the conflict. Very quickly. Um, clearly Boaz is wanting this man to not marry Ruth. He, he's in love. He has been lavishing uh, his kindness on her for months now. And he knows that this guy holds the promise of happiness in his hands. And so what does he do? This guy could easily have become an adversary. It would have been so easy for Boaz to switch and see this guy as an opponent, as an enemy. This guy is going to rob me of my joy. He, he could have tried to do a backdoor deal. He could have gone to him and said, look, buddy, I will pay you anything. He could have gone to the elders and said, look, when this happens, I want, I'll give you some money, I'll do whatever is necessary, but you need to figure out a way to prevent this guy from marrying Ruth. You know, he did none of that, none of that at all. He chose friendship. He courteously and graciously invited this man into a conversation and spoke to him as a friend. Now remember, these two men were brothers or close relatives in Israel, and this situation could easily have caused animosity and conflict and anger and alienation. But Boaz fostered peace. Boaz made choices that fostered relational unity. And clearly, obviously, this is a hallmark of Christian maturity. 
This is something that men and women of character do in the body of Christ. This is exactly what Jesus did. I don't call you servants anymore. You're not my slaves. Johnny says, you're my friends. That's who we are. That's who we are called to be. And yes, in the church, there are situations that create conflict. In every marriage, there are situations that create conflict. Conflict is not a bad thing. It's not a bad word. Conflict is sometimes a good thing, a necessary thing. We have conflict in this story. But friendship, godly, peacemaking friendship, a passion for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is always foremost in the heart of a man or woman of God of character. As I said, Jesus chose friendship with a bunch of people. Think about Simon. Think about the sons of thunder. Can we sit on the throne each side of you? Because we're probably better than these guys. I'll never desert you. Yeah, you're going to desert me. Judas was there. I call you my friends. I call you my friends. Fourthly, he sought transparency in the transaction. He wanted to do everything in an open and transparent way. That's why the witnesses are so important. So at the early in the morning, he gets... Ten, ten witnesses, ten elders of the city says, stay here. The guy comes along, and he wants this transaction done publicly. He doesn't want it done behind closed doors in any, any way. There was nothing hidden. There's nothing surreptitious about this, nothing underhanded. Everything was done in an open, honest, transparent way. And after the exchange happened, after this process was finished, he says, Verse 9, you are witnesses. They say, yes, we are witnesses. Have you ever noticed how the ministry of Jesus was so public, so transparent? At every step in the process, even the transfiguration, which in some senses was the most sacred moment in his ministry, even at the transfiguration, he is there with his friends. On the cross, that's why, that's why Paul says in, at the end of Colossians 2 that Jesus publicly triumphed over Satan. He made a public spectacle of him. He did it out in the open. There was nothing secret. The transaction of our salvation was a transparent transaction. So why were the witnesses so important? Boaz was making a commitment. He, he was publicly stating his desire to marry Ruth, to care for her and for Naomi, to raise up children to, for Ma, Milan. He was, he was publicly obligating himself to do something in Bethlehem, and he was going to be accountable for that. You and I need transparency. I, I've been in pastoral ministry now for... Well, 41 years. Today's my 40th wedding anniversary. Thank you very much. Yeah. I, st I started as a youth pastor a year before I got married. So 41 years of ministry. Um, and God, is, God has been so good. But let me tell you this. One of the things I have noticed time and time and time over those four plus decades is that people who were not transparent are not godly. 
Sin is just too enticing. The darkness is too appealing. We must have transparency in our lives. Secrecy is just too convenient. If you don't have a transparent relationship, like Jesus the transfiguration didn't have all the disciples there. And that wasn't a bad thing. But there were people there with him. In his ministry, there were people there all the time. At the cross, he was on the cross naked before the world. In some senses, we need to have people whom we can be naked with. Who know us and all of the faults and all of the struggles and all of the challenges and all of the failures who are praying for us and holding us accountable. If you don't have that transparency in your life, you cannot be a godly man or a godly woman. Now, you need people you can trust. You need people that are godly who are going to pray for you, who are going to have the boldness to come to you and say, look, you're out of line here. The way that you are treating your wife, the way that you are behaving at business, the way that you are handling this situation with your children, that's, that's out of line. You need people that love you enough and are bold enough and courageous enough to speak into your life. But folks, you need them. Be one of those people and make sure you got them in your life. It's amazing how I can go through this quickly if I really want to. <laughs> and I wanted to get to this point. I wanted to get to this. There's so much you could say about chapter four. But I wanted to get to this point. He left a legacy. He left a legacy. Although Boaz didn't pronounce the blessing, he would have affirmed it. He would have rejoiced in it. He would have loved to have heard it. The people of Boaz say, say of Boaz, may you act worthily. He's a worthy man. May you continue to be a man of integrity, a man of nobility, a man of godly character in Ephratha and also in Bethlehem. What they are saying in that blessing is that they trust that the union of this worthy man and this worthy, righteous woman will have a legacy both in their tribe and in their community. And when you think about it, what a legacy. What a legacy. Ruth and Boaz were married. A little while later, little Obed comes along. And Obed grows up and has a son, and his name's Jesse. But this time, Boaz is dead, and maybe Ruth is an old woman. Naomi's gone. But Jesse's a little boy, and Ruth is his grandmother. Then Jesse grows up, and at some point in time, Ruth dies and goes. And Jesse has, what, eight sons? Seven or eight sons, I think it is, in 1 Samuel. The youngest, David becomes the king. And from David comes the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Like, what a legacy. What a legacy of worthiness, godly character. Have you ever considered your legacy? Most people, when we do, think about money. And although the Bible talks a little bit about money and about the importance of Godly parents leaving an inheritance for their children. By the way, I used to think that was really important a long time ago. I'm not big on it now, but nonetheless. <laughs> the Bible doesn't prioritize that. That's not the real focus. The real focus is our kids. It's our children. 
is raising our kids to know and love Jesus. That's our legacy. But it's beyond that. It's those people that we share the gospel with and who we invite into a living relationship with Jesus. It's the people that we mentor. It's the people that we disciple. It's the people that we pour our lives into of the next generation. People that we leave in our wake who will continue the work and serve Christ. I have a cousin in Ireland, her name's Judith, and she's a lovely lady. We spent time with her last summer. Judith didn't get married until she was in her, I think, late 50s, and so as a consequence, she never had children. She was married for three years, and then her husband died, and she was alone again. But Judith made a decision early in her younger life that she would invest in the children of her church. And over a number of decades, she poured her life into the kids in what is called the Iron Hall in Belfast, a big brethren church in Belfast. And those were her kids. And although I've never talked to her about it, I know that there's probably an ache in her heart that she was never blessed with a husband as a younger woman and never blessed with children. She had kids, and she poured her life into them. And those kids are grown now mostly, and they're her legacy, who are passing on the gospel of grace to others. We are all going to live a short time on this planet, and we're all going to have a legacy, for better or for worse. But legacies are left by worthy people people of character, people who understand that pleasure is fleeting, but the principle of obedience is absolutely critical. People who understand, forgot my notes, point number two, people who understand that submitting to scripture is so critically important. It's so, so, so critically important. People understand the importance of transparency, having people in our lives. People understand the importance of living godly lives, leave godly inheritances. So as we finish the book today, that's the, that's the message that I want to leave with you. God has called you to leave that kind of legacy. And you can't unless you're a godly woman or a godly man following, answering the question in your life, what would Boaz do? Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the book of Ruth. I thank you for this love story that in so many beautiful ways prefigures the love story that is the gospel. I thank you for Boaz. I thank you for the worthy man that he was, how that At the end of his life, he left a legacy, a legacy that we are basking in today in the person of Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would speak to all of us about the importance of character, godly character, and about the importance of living that character out in such a way as to raise up people behind us who will continue with that godly legacy for the glory of Jesus. Use us, I pray, to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.